Let me pray. Father, as we open up your word together, we ask that through your spirit, you would comfort us. You would encourage us so that we can walk in your ways and you would confront us about the ways that we are not. We invite you to do this because we need it. All our ways are known to you. Make the ways that are known to you that are displeasing to you and hurtful to us and to your church known to us as well so that we would desire to repent and turn from them. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is the third part of a sermon entitled Remaining Faithful to Christ. So let's just look really quickly at verses 13 and 14. Five admonitions here. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So together, these these five imperatives, they represent Paul's summary appeal to the Corinthians to remain faithful to Christ. And based on what Paul has said to them in, in the body of this letter, which we've worked through, all of it relates to these, these first four admonitions here of these five. They all relate to adhering to the gospel, remaining loyalty, loyal to Christ and his gospel amidst the spiritual opposition that you're going to face in this world It requires that you be on the alert, you stand firm in the faith, you act like men, and you be strong. Then the final imperative is let all that you do be done in love. And together, those two, the adhering to the faith, to the gospel, and letting letting all that you do be done in love, together those two represent what it's going to take for you and for me to remain faithful to Christ in this godless world. And so... Remain faithful to Christ by adhering to the gospel and loving one another. That's the summary of what we're looking at now in our third sermon. So, first of all, remaining faithful to Christ requires that you adhere to the gospel. The true gospel says that sinners, they can be saved from the wrath of God by grace. Right? You're not earning this. It's grace. It's a gift. It's through faith, not through works, in Jesus Christ and apart from anything that I have done. And Christ did everything to purchase eternal life for me by his death on the cross, cross and his resurrection to new life. And, and I put my full, unreserved trust in him to save me. I have no other hope besides Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it has many counterfeits. Some claim that you can earn eternal life by being a good person. By believing in yourself, being true to yourself, or a big one today, living authentically. Some say Christ is a way to God, not the only way to God, though. Some say salvation is faith plus something else, maybe faith plus good works, faith, faith plus penance, faith from, from doing everything that the church tells you to do, faith plus a right understanding of God, faith plus, plus anything is a false gospel. Faith plus nothing is the gospel. And then there are those who seek to separate saving faith in Christ from the life-transforming work of the Spirit. And Paul addressed this back in chapter 6 in Corinthians when he warns against allowing yourself to believe that those who live an unrighteous lifestyle, so this isn't just, you know, falling into sin here and there. This This is your life. Unrighteousness. People like that, no matter what comes out of their mouth about their belief in God or whatever, people like that are not going to have a place in God's kingdom. He says, he said it, don't be deceived. So great is the transforming power of the Spirit of God that all who believe, they walk away from their sins. Sins that once dominated their and defined their lives. We're talking about fornication, adultery, homosexuality, Greed, just to name a few that he names. Christ sets free everyone who believes in him and he empowers them through his spirit to live for them. And every believer born anew by the spirit has had their natures transformed such that they are now compelled by a love for Christ to start living for Christ actively and increasingly. Now, with all these counterfeits, we can see why Paul's 
um, second admonition is be on your guard. Or no, first admonition, excuse me. First admonition here is be on your guard. He says, be alert. If we allow ourselves to grow spiritually dull, we put ourselves and those we care about in harm's way. Those who are not on their guard, they often show that they're not on their guard by being insensitive to sin in their lives. See, sin operates by deceit. And so we can't allow ourselves to see sin in other people's lives while overlooking the sin in our own lives. Another evidence of spiritual dullness that goes hand in hand with insensitivity to sin is a lack of regard for God's Word. It can be very easy for us to disregard what God says in His Word as if it doesn't apply to us only to others. You read right over verses, let's say, about gossip or slander or selfishness and lying. And while you're reading those verses, you're thinking of all these people who need to read this verse right now or hear this sermon right now. Meanwhile, you're thinking none of it applies to you. Be careful. That's called hypocrisy. See, when you are not on your guard, that's how how sin is going to deceive you. Secondly, if you are to adhere to the gospel, you first of all must be alert. You must be on your guard. And second of all, you must stand firm in the faith. And the faith refers to what you believe, right? So this is both the content of what you believe about Christ, about his gospel, as well as the act of trusting those gospel facts and realities to be absolutely true. Right? You must not allow yourself to be moved away from the true gospel to any of the counterfeits, like the ones I was referring to just a minute ago. And you must also stand firm. When the world rages against you for turning to God away from the numerous idols of our culture to serve a living and true God. They're not going to stand by and let you do that without saying something or doing something to you. Our culture continues to unfetter itself from a morality that is based in the Bible. Which means that man is going to increasingly seek to do that which is right, but right in their own eyes. We're watching Western culture increasingly resemble the picture that Isaiah paints in chapter 5 as it, as it rushes to justify and, and applaud immorality and abortion and, and vilify those who won't join in. Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight, Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine, valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. I think I read that just as a description of our culture. In every Christian's lifetime, regardless of the era, you should expect your desire to remain faithful to Christ to be tested. God is the one who decides to what degree and in what circumstances those tests are going to come. But no Christian should be surprised when they face opposition from the world. In fact, from the Bible standpoint, persecution is to be expected. Could the Apostle Paul have stated it any clearer than his words to Timothy when he said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus was equally clear of what we should expect if we're going to follow him when he said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus also made it clear that those of the world are going to hate Christians because the world hates Christ. In fact, a lack of opposition from the world, it it may suggest that you really are not that different from the world. If If you say you're a Christian... But you're just as vain, sensual, given to pleasure, wealth, and ambition, and and it's to the same degree that everybody is around you. They're going to leave you alone. Because any light of Christ in your life is hidden, and it's not bothering them one bit. But you don't belong to the world, Christian. 
And that's why the world hates you. Jesus said in John 15, he said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. The world hates you because you've separated yourself from it. And in this Christian, there is cause to rejoice. Did you know that, that, that in persecution, whatever the degree, when you are persecuted for the cause of Christ, there is a unique fellowship that you get to share with the Lord? Paul calls it the fellowship of His sufferings. It, it's... It's not the pain and the hardship that you go through that is, you know, somehow made good. But it's the experience of what He promised to us. His companionship. His resurrection power. His strength to endure and even, as we sang, overcome. And so if you're going to, going to adhere to the gospel, you must stand firm in the faith. And then that leads us to the third and the fourth admonitions that Paul gives us. Remaining loyal to Christ and His gospel amidst the spiritual opposition that you will face in this world, it requires that you be on your guard and you stand firm in the faith. And that, my friends, means that you must also act like men and be strong. Now, if any of you are taking notes and paid attention over the last couple of weeks, I initially lumped these two commands together. and I saw them essentially as Paul just... Calling, uh, calling us to courage in the Christian life. And I think that's certainly true. He's, Paul is certainly influenced by the Old Testament, including the Psalms. And, and, and you often see those dual commands, be strong and be courageous, put together in, in many Old Testament passages, right? So that kind of a command would fit here very well within the Corinthian context given the extraordinary pressures of the pagan society society that is pressing in on this church. But the more I studied Paul's commands, the more I felt that these two really do need to be addressed separately. So, so I've modified the points that I originally put out in the, in the last couple of weeks. Instead of the third way that you adhere to the gospel being by being strong and courageous, I've updated that. The way that we, stay, we adhere to the gospel is we pursue spiritual maturity and then we be strong in the Lord. So it's two points. And guess what that means? Two more sermons. I can't believe how much has exploded out of just these five admonitions as I've looked at them. It's a great way to summarize what we've seen Paul saying throughout this letter in, in Corinth, but it just brings in so many needful things. Uh, from the scriptures that is good to talk about separately. And so, remaining faithful to Christ and adhering to the gospel requires that we, thirdly, pursue spiritual maturity. In Paul's words, he says that we must act like men. And the Greek word, it literally means, it says, be manly. And so, it kind of sounds like Paul's emphasizing some very masculine virtues here. But, in the context of this letter, Paul is reminding them of their need to turn from their childish ways. So what he's saying here in, in Be Manly, he's saying stop being childish and act like a man. Act like a grown-up. He's not just highlighting manliness. He's highlighting being mature. So let's talk about spiritual immaturity for a moment. Spiritual immaturity some of you have been going to church faithfully for many years. In some cases, all your life. You were born into a Christian family and you have been attending church before you can even remember. Did you know that faithfully going to church doesn't automatically mean that you're a mature Christian? Did you know that? Don't get me wrong, you're, you're, you're making church a priority each week. That is absolutely vital to your growth in Christ, but just hearing the word preached each week isn't the same thing as heeding the word that you hear. You realize that just being able to articulate true things about God, that, does that, that doesn't mean that you're growing as a Christian. 
It's certainly true that spiritual growth, it does depend on a right understanding of God, but, but some of the clearest measures of spiritual growth is seeing the fruit of God's Spirit in your life. We're talking about love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So here's what that means. And you need to hear this. That means that you can be in a solid church with sound teaching and you can be there for many years and yet remain stunted in your spiritual growth. This was the lament of the author of Hebrews. That after years of solid biblical teaching, those who had heard the word had not progressed much in their Christian lives. He says this in Hebrews 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. So, it's like, picture a grown man. This grown man should be teaching others, but instead he's drinking milk out of a sippy cup while he stands in line to re-register for preschool. That's the spiritual picture of what he's talking about here. Though they had received much instruction, they were still nothing more than well-taught little baby Christians. And the question that you need to be asking yourself is, is he talking about me? Is he talking about me? Well, let me give you three signs that you might be spiritually immature. The first two come from the letter of Corinthians that we've been in. And the third from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. First, spiritually immature Christians cause strife and division. Spiritually immature Christians cause strife and division. Turn back to chapter 3. Chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. And this is where Paul told them, uh, look at verse 1. He says, And I, brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. And what he means by that is, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you. And then he addressed their childish, their divisive behavior of aligning themselves with the different teachers that they had that had come through the church. And you see that in verses four through seven. They were saying, I'm a Paul, Apollos, I'm a Paul, I'm a Christ, you know, I'm going right to Christ. And he says, what are they? What are these men that you are teaming up on? I'm on team Apollos. I'm on team Paul. Who are these men? He says, they're servants. Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And then he makes it really clear what that servant does. I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. See, a sure sign of spiritual immaturity is regular strife and division between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's usually over petty matters. Petty matters. If they should do something that offends you, you retaliate. You hurt them with your words, right? Sharp words to them. Slanderous words to other people behind their back. Or you sever the relationship. We're done. See, when things go well for other believers, instead of rejoicing with them, you get jealous that it happened to them and not you. And this leads you to view others in the church with contempt. And this is because one of the driving sinful forces behind spiritual immaturity is selfishness. And when you let your selfish, immature heart go unchecked, it leads to broken relationships and even broken churches. Out of selfishness, spiritually immature people can cause splits. In a church. It happens all the time. Over petty matters. 
And so if strife seems to characterize your relationships, if you can't forgive others, if there's tension with your family in Christ that often goes unresolved, you may very well be an immature Christian who needs to start growing up. Now, in the same passage, chapter 3, Paul tied being an infant in Christ with being controlled by fleshly impulses. Control, this is another quality of an immature Christian, being controlled by fleshly impulses. He says, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. Infants in Christ, you're still fleshly. So what does it mean from the... From Paul's standpoint, what does it mean to be fleshly? He defines the work of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. You can turn there and I'll read it to you, but maybe it's good to have your own eyes on this. Chapter 5, verse 19. Here's what he says. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm sure Paul could have listed other fleshly behaviors, but this gives you a good idea of the kinds of things that Paul has in mind. You know, small children are known for their tantrums. When they don't get something that they want. When, when, when the spiritually immature Christian... Oh, here's a little parenting moment. I'm just going to throw this in there. If you have a young child and they choose, when you go to the grocery store, to flop down on the floor and throw their tantrum in public, that's a test, parent. Because you're going to say something to the effect of, do you want to go home? Or do you want a spanking? You know, which... That's silly. What you do is say, you need to get up off the floor or I'm going to take you to the car and spank you. And if they don't, then you need to follow through. And if you do that on the first time, and if it happens the second time you do that again, guess what won't happen in public anymore? Tantrums on the floor in the grocery store. Because they see that out of love for them, you're not going to put up with this kind of behavior without a spanking. You take them to the car you make sure no one else can see because of the world we live in. That's not perceived as love. That's perceived as abuse. And that's hogwash. Do this and you end, the, you end the problem. Back to our text. Public service announcement is over. So when spiritually immature Christians don't get their way, they don't flop on the floor and throw a tantrum. At least I, I, I hope you don't. But here's what they do instead. Instead of surrendering themselves to Christ, exercising self-control, they, they give themselves over to their fleshly impulses. And so the tantrum takes on the form of enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, fighting, resisting, envying, all that. Infants have... This is what spiritually immature Christians do. They don't submit to God. They don't exercise self-control. They get back at you. Think about an infant. They need help when they're walking, right? They have a difficult time walking on their own. The same is true for spiritual infants. Spiritual infants have a difficult time walking in the Spirit. Because he says, Paul says, right after he talks about the fleshly, the fleshly list, he says, is if you walk by the Spirit, you'll not carry out those, those deeds of the flesh. But see, spiritually immature Christians have a difficult time walking with the Spirit. Let's be honest. We all have a difficult time walking with the Spirit consistently. Producing and displaying the fruit of God in your life in a continual manner. And so, Christian, if you find yourself continually giving over to fits of anger sensual behavior, envy, strife, and so forth, it's a sign that you are a, a man or a woman of flesh. You are an infant in Christ, and you need to grow up. A third sign that you may be a spiritually immature believer is that you are gullible to strange doctrines. This is in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, 
Paul is, is writing them a letter and he told them that God gives pastors and teachers to build up believers in the word so that Christians, he says, may, be, may no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You know, you all know that we have a cabin on Lake Ponderé in northern Idaho. It's a rather large lake. The storms that blow through there can be quite large when when considering what a lake is, right? And back when we were much young, when I was much younger, probably when I was around four years old, one of the things that my sisters and I loved to do is when a storm would blow through in the summertime, water's still warm, the waves are reaching four feet or so in height, we would go sit on the edge of the beach right where the waves crash. And so the wave would come and they'd crash on our shoulders and push us forward, but then the wave would retreat and go back out, right? And so it, it would make us go backwards. But me being the smallest, four years old, it would flip me around backwards into the water. And that was fun. It was also disorienting. And so spiritually immature believers are like this. They're small children. But they're not going to Lake Ponderé. They're going to the Pacific Ocean. And they're sitting on the beach. And the waves and the surfs hit and they crash upon them and they're far more powerful. And so that type of flipping around in the water is not fun. It's disorienting, but it's not fun. And it's not fun for you. And it's not fun for the church when that happens to you, spiritually speaking. One of the signs of being a spiritual child is every time some new teaching of doctrine blows through the evangelical world, your faith is shaken by it. And you start believing it. I saw this teacher on, on YouTube and... And golly, we've been believing the wrong things this whole time. Forget the fact that this person who you're listening to doesn't go to church because they think all the churches are apostate or, or some nonsense like that. You know, YouTube has a lot to offer, a lot of good stuff there, but not to those who lack spiritual discernment. You're going to believe this stuff. And you're going to lead yourself astray and you're going to be encouraging other people to come. Hey, have you heard this guy? Let me send you the link. And now we got a problem. See, that's why God has given you elders. To shepherd you. And to teach you from the word. And to be around you. Not these people who you'll never meet. On YouTube or anything like that. Part of normal, healthy, spiritual growth is to have certain perspectives about God that develop as you regularly sit under solid biblical teaching in your church. But not so with the spiritually immature. See, the spiritually immature are marked by instability. With each new book or blog post they read or YouTube teaching that they watch, they change their views, right? Whichever way the doctrinal wind is blowing. And as they grow up in the gospel, the waves and the winds of weird or false doctrines, they no longer get knocked over by them because they're growing. And they're becoming more mature and more solid and standing in the faith. Pursuing spiritual maturity is a slow process. And it happens over time. Paul says in Hebrews 5, 14, he says, But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. See, physical maturity takes time. We, we, we got no dispute over a three-year-old you know, who's not looking like a 20-year-old. That's a problem. The same is true with spiritual maturity. It takes time. The author says it takes training. It takes constant practice over your lifetime. In other words, there is no instant jump from toddler to teacher. It takes time. Your growth is going to happen over time, and it happens with much practice and with many failures from which you learn important lessons that God has for you about yourself and about him. So how can you be trained towards spiritual maturity? Well, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to jump out of Corinthians and spend the rest of our time here in 2 Peter. Look at chapter 1. The church that Peter's writing to is plagued by false teachers that were attempting to draw them away from the faith by promoting false doctrines. And by the time Peter wrote these words, he had become a highly respected teacher with a wealth of experience. 
He had been taught personally by the Lord Jesus himself. And he had been present at most of the seminal events in the early history of the church. So Peter could speak authoritatively against these false teachers who who were bringing what he describes in chapter 2, verse 1, as destructive heresies that permitted people to, as he says in verse 10 of chapter 2, indulge, indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. That's where these destructive heresies were leading people to. But in, a, in addressing this matter, Peter also painted a picture of what a spiritually mature Christian looks like. Now look at verses 5 through 7. Actually, we'll get there in just a second. That's where we see this list of characteristics that describe the mature Christian. It's, it's something that we should strive for in order so that we can, as he says in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, so that we may become partakers of the divine nature. So he tells us, though, before we get to our main text here in, in Peter, he tells us in verse 3, and we've been here before, and this is such a, a key verse. He says in verse 3, that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. So Peter is saying that God has given us everything that we need to grow in spiritual maturity through His Word, right? That's the source of the true knowledge about Christ. Now, we need to stop here for just a moment and think about this. Think about this. God has already, already granted to you everything that you need to know how to live for God and how to grow in godliness. God has made sure, Christian, that you lack nothing of what you need. So, what does that mean? That means that you need to stop telling yourself that you're lacking something that is going to help you to grow and mature and become a godly man or woman. That means He hasn't denied you anything that you need to live and become a godly man or woman. So you need to stop making excuses. Excuses for your sinful behavior. Excuses for your wrong thinking. You need to stop playing the blame game. Pointing fingers at other people or things or events. Your spiritual struggles and disappointments are not the result of you being denied something that you need or because someone hurt you or because some dream for yourself has been crushed. You need to see who it is you are really accusing with this attitude and this mindset. God, you've failed me. God, you've denied me. God, you hurt me. That is what you're saying. That's what you're saying in your heart while you point at other things and other people. See your complaints and excuses for what they really are. They are accusations against the one that you know is sovereign over everything in your life. And so in that sense, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. God has indeed allowed those things. But what you're failing to see is that while He has chosen to deny you, or allow you to go through something difficult, He has also given you everything you need to live for God and grow in godliness. You're growing, but not in godliness. You're growing in bitterness. That's what you're doing. And in your bitterness, you're refusing to see that out of love for you, He is in the midst of causing these hurts and these disappointments to work together for your good. And part of that good is your spiritual growth and maturity. So now we get to the picture of of spiritually mature man that Peter paints for us in verses 5 through 7. Follow along with me. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. So Peter is not describing the steps to spiritual maturity. As if we start with faith, and then we go to moral excellence, and then we go to knowledge, and on and on until we end with love. Right? You, you go with that, with that approach, you'll be focused on the first one for the rest of your life. You won't move on to the others. So it's not steps to spiritual maturity. It's the picture of the spiritually mature man or woman. 
So each of these are a part of the whole picture. It's a composite picture of the spiritually mature man or woman. And that means that we recognize that that godliness is pursued by working hard. He says, applying all diligence. And you were to do it on each of these areas. So let's take a moment to make sure that we understand what each of these characteristics that Peter mentions are so that we know what it is that we are to be pursuing if we want to grow in spiritual maturity. Faith. Peter means the same thing as Paul. He's talking about the faith. The faith in which you are to stand firm. So the content of faith is in view as well as the believing of those truths are in view. And I think, I think we see both of them in the way that Paul describes, for example, Abraham's faith. This is such a great picture. Please keep your finger here and turn to Romans 4. Look at Romans 4 because I just we've gone here before, but I think it's just so worth going back and seeing again. This is the way Paul describes Abraham's faith, and it's very helpful for those who need to grow in their faith. He says in verse 19, he's talking about Abraham. He says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet... With respect to the promises of God, the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured of what God uh, that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So here, on the one hand, Abraham has his own old body, his hundred-year-old body, and he also has in that hands the deadness of Sarah's womb. She has never given birth. She's just as old as he is. And on the other hand, God's promise to him that he would have an heir of his own house. So instead of wavering in unbelief, which one should I go with? Abraham chose to believe God was able to do what he promised. So God tells you in his word all that he wants you and me to be fully assured of. Like, just like Abraham was fully assured of this promise from God. And that's the main way that God grows your faith. It's by hearing and reading His Word about His precious and magnificent promises to you that He doesn't want you to waver in unbelief about. He wants you to believe them. He wants you to be fully assured about them. He's able to do them. And then, after presenting all this to us in His Word over and over, then He gives you an opportunity to exercise that faith. And that's called a trial. That comes your way. The various trials and the tests that he brings along so, to, so that you can face them and exercise that faith. Your faith can grow by watching other godly men and women. No doubt about that. You can see how they respond. But the most common way it grows is when it is stretched and it is tested through trials. Trials are spiritual workouts for your faith so that you will grow in your faith will grow in strength, which is. That's why you can do what James says. You can rejoice when you encounter them. I know that they hurt and I know that they bring tears, but somewhere inside that, can you say, but God, you're doing this for my good. You're allowing this for my good and I know you want my faith to grow and I know you want me to mature and that's why you've allowed this. Even when it comes through wicked and evil people, Joseph, what you meant for evil, and you might have pictures of people in your mind, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. See, through the trial, not only is your faith and commitment to God made able to be strengthened, but you're growing in spiritual maturity. Next is moral excellence. So in addition to faith, spiritually mature Christians will also have moral excellence. ESV calls it virtue. The NIV says goodness. Peter used this same word, though, when verse 3, when he describes the Lord's own excellence. That's the same word. So part of your growth towards spiritual maturity is to work hard at being an honorable and virtuous man or woman. You have a perfect example of what you're aiming for in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Read the Gospels. Pay attention to how... how um, to the kindness that He displayed towards others uh, and how He came alongside those who needed encouragement and strength to stand for what was right. Notice also how bold he was to live rightly for God in front of others who weren't wanting to do that. You know, that's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult 
especially when it's your friends who are egging you on to join them in their sin. There's nothing sinners like better than to convince you to join them in their wickedness. But here's what your, your spiritual father, Solomon, in his wisdom tells you. He says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Spiritual maturity is a product of not just resisting sin in general, but resisting the efforts of others to get you to sin. And that only happens because you are diligently pursuing moral excellence in your life. Third is knowledge. The knowledge that you are to have is that of Jesus Christ and what pleases Him. You must also have a knowledge of of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Jesus says. This is the knowledge that you are to be diligently growing in. The more you grow in the knowledge of God and of His grace, the better that you will be able to identify and reject the false teachings that destabilize the faith of less mature believers. Paul's prayer for the Colossians, it was, uh, it was for them to be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, right? So he wants your knowledge to be filled, but also for you to gain the wisdom to know how to take that knowledge and live it out in a right way. That's a picture of maturity. Your knowledge about God and His will, it can only be built by disciplining yourself to study God's Word. Our lives are busy. So committing to a time of studying the Word, that can be challenging. But if you desire to pursue spiritual maturity, you must be diligent to grow in your knowledge of God by studying His Word. Fourth is self-control. Self-control refers to mastery over the evil inclinations and the desires of your heart. It means moderation, staying within the limits of God's laws. And when Paul was before uh, Governor Felix, Luke says that he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Can you, can you see how these all go together? The man who is right with God exhibits self-control in light of the judgment to come. That's why he was talking about it with Felix. Paul highlighted self-control back in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Don't turn back there. He says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. He says, I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. My friends, your path to spiritual maturity, it involves you making choices to have self-control and discipline in basic areas of your spiritual life. How you use alcohol. Honesty in your work. Integrity in your relationships moral behavior at all times, not just when others see you. A big area has to do with how you entertain yourself, your choice of music, what you're you're dwelling on and meditating on through music, what you watch to please and entertain yourself, what what you play for entertainment, your activity and behavior on social media. These things are not neutral. They influence you more than you know. They now have people earning money being influencers. So this is no joke. You can't just say, oh, that's no big deal. It's just Instagram. It's just Twitter. It's just TikTok. These don't make any difference in my life. The rate of girls who are killing themselves because they can't view themselves except through the lens of of social media It's through the roof. So there's no denying the influence that this stuff is having. Is it influencing you, though? The spiritual immature believer thinks that these things don't matter. But they do. And you know that you're desiring to mature in the Lord when you not only admit this, that it is influencing me, but you're now seeking to remove those ungodly influences from your life. That's a good thing. You're pursuing spiritual maturity by doing this. Fifth, perseverance. It means persisting, uh, patiently persisting in the face of trials and difficulties. Do you, you give up when the going gets tough or when being a Christian becomes difficult? So you need to learn to persevere because a spiritually mature Christian doesn't give up. Self-control and perseverance are like, 
are like the different sides of, of a coin. Um, on one side of the coin is self-control. That's moderation and restraint related to good things. On the other side of the coin is perseverance, the willingness to endure bad things in the hope of good things to come. James talks about the need to persevere in the face of trials. He says in, in chapter 1, he says, let endurance, and that's the word for perseverance, let perseverance, enduring through trials, let it have its perfect result. And what is that perfect result? So that you may per- be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's called maturity. That's what he's doing when he brings these trials into your life. That's why you can rejoice through these things. You're going uh, you are going to face trials of many kinds, various kinds in your life. And so if you want to grow in spiritual maturity, then make it your goal to persevere through them. God wants you to grow up too. That's why he keeps allowing them to come your way. And that's why you can be thankful for them. Six is godliness. This word simply means being like God. It means imitating, taking on the character traits of God. It, it means being aware of God, wanting to live according to his commands. God has not left you without an example to follow, has he, Christian? He's given you the very picture of godliness in the description of his son that you read in scripture. Peter says God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through what? The true knowledge of him, of Christ. Paul told Timothy, he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's not going to just happen. You've got to discipline yourself. Why? Why would you even bother to deny yourself things that bring, well, they bring pleasure for about this long and then comes the guilt and stuff like that. Why would you discipline yourself for godliness? Why would you work hard at this? He says, godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life, also for the life to come. See, the more you imitate God in your life by loving what He loves, hating what He hates, valuing what God values, appreciating what God, God appreciates, the more mature that you will become and the more stable your life will be. Seventh is brotherly kindness. We're talking about a love where you cherish other believers as you would cherish your own brother or sister. And that doesn't count if you hate your brother and sister. That's not a good example, is it? Right? We're talking about when you finally get past all that silliness in your youth and you really do love your brother or sister. That kind of love needs to happen towards other Christians who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Trials and hard times can tempt you to look out for number one. Right? Don't let that happen. Hebrews was written to encourage Jewish Christians who were suffering persecution. And, and so the author explicitly tells them in chapter 13, he says, let the love of the brethren continue. You who are suffering trials, don't stop loving each other. Don't let the trials that God allows make you selfish and uncaring of others. That's not why God sent them. They're to grow you in faith, in your perseverance, in your kindness towards others while you are also suffering same care that you have for your family, right? Don't you immediately think when something bad happens, where are my children? He says, that's the kind of reaction we need to have towards one another. Where are my brothers and sisters in Christ in the midst of this? Jesus says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. It's not only during trials that we must extend kindness. Do you know that you can do this? simply by thinking of other people who maybe don't get as invited to things as as you do. Maybe because they're single. Maybe because they're divorced. They don't have a family unit around them anymore. And it's easy to think by them. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. I'm just trying to make you aware of ways that you can show kindness to others, even in our small body. Include them in the things that you're doing. They're your brother and sister in Christ. Think of them. Draw them in. Build a relationship with them. Reach out to them during the week. See, when you start recognizing the need to show brotherly kindness, be encouraged. You're growing in spiritual maturity. And last is love. We need to love people the way God loves people. But I'm not going to say anything about that because we've got a whole command here. Let all things be done in love. I'm going to address that when we get to that, that command. See, we are all to be maturing in all these areas. No one will be perfect in all of them. But that doesn't mean we don't aim 
to become perfect in all of them. And one of the marks of the true Christian is that you are continually striving to develop these characteristics in your life. Here's what Peter adds. So follow with me in verses 8 through 11. It's the last verse we're going to read. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind, short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Isn't that just the things you desire most? I want to know that I'm going to heaven. I don't want to doubt that. I'm tired of doubting these things. Start pursuing these things and you'll see the growth of, of spiritual growth in your life. And that will encourage and strengthen you. This is how you remain faithful to Christ. You adhere to the gospel and you love one another. You adhere to the gospel by being on your guard, by standing firm in the faith, and by pursuing spiritual maturity. You must also be strong in the Lord, and that's what we're going to look at next time. So let's pray. Father, I pray that through your word, not only has truth been proclaimed, but love as well. This is your love for us. You desire that we would grow and mature and not be immature believers any longer. Let us shed these things. Let us be thankful that we come before a God who is gracious. Though you have known all these things and seen all our ways, you have not turned away from us or rejected us. Because Christ has paid for them all. And through Christ, we can begin walking like he did, living like he did. Help us to do that, not to walk out of this room and think, wow, that was a good sermon and forget all about it. Don't let Satan snatch away the word that's been sown. Let it grow and bear fruit hundreds of times more in our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.